Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Lizzie. You know, I, I feel like I need to um, like put a disclaimer before speaking tonight, which is that what I said earlier about not feeling like I'm firing on all c- cylinders because, you know, the amount of energy expended subconsciously on worrying, <laughs> um, which I'm, I'm not a big worrier, uh, but I, I can feel it in my body, you know, that I'm frazzled. Um, so I feel like the disclaimer here is, um, well, it's more of, I'll just say prematurely, I am looking forward to reading all of the sermons of all of the rabbis all over the country who had to figure out what to say right now, um, as we were thinking about it before knowing really like what's happening, um, definitively, um, in this moment of thinking we sort of know what's going on, but also not having the peace of mind of, of really knowing. So if you're, if you can relate, feel free to like plus one in the chat. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about though. Um, I'm thinking about a study that um, Shankar Vedantam talked about on one of his shows on Hidden Brain um, about soccer fans. And the study was like this, it was done in the UK they posted an invitation for hardcore fans of Manchester United, which was, which is a soccer team, um, to be part of a study. And they gathered them in one place and had them write about why they love Manchester United, the team, and then had them walk across campus. And as they were walking across campus, they see a guy who's writhing in pain on the floor or on the, on the ground, he twisted his ankle jogging and he's wearing a Liverpool shirt, like the arch enemy team. And wouldn't you know, more often than not, Manchester United fans would not stop to help the guy on the ground who was clearly in pain and couldn't stand up, who was wearing the jersey of the rival team. Uh, And they did the study, you know, with multiple variables and a different variable, a a different way they did the study was instead of having the fans write about Manchester United, why they love Manchester United before walking across campus, they wrote about why they loved soccer. Like what about this game, you know, was, was so meaningful to them. And wouldn't you know, when people wrote about their love of soccer, they were much more likely, they were just as likely to stop and help the Liverpool guy on the ground on the way across campus. Because in fact, they were on the same team. And in this season of red versus blue, you know, I've been thinking about like, This isn't what politics is supposed to be about, I don't think. Like, politics is supposed to be about serving and taking care of people, protecting people's rights to health, education, justice. And these are are the kinds of problems that require nuanced discourse. 
to arrive at solutions across differences, you know, creative differences of opinions that, um, you know, for most people, including incredibly well-informed people, um, our political conversations resemble more like the Manchester United versus Liverpool, red versus blue, uh, you know, tribalism than deep, nuanced discourse. Very often, I mean, like this week, it's felt like double overtime, you know, between two teams that revile each other, red and blue. And we were talking today in the office that, you know, even the way the returns are coming back feels like we're at a horse race or something, you know, that like Trump's out ahead. Oh, nope, here comes Biden coming up from behind. Oh, strong finish. And Arizona goes blue, score, and everyone cheers or their face falls, you know? Um, and <laughs> I'm like remembering back to the, you know, Bulls three-peat when I cared about sports when I was in third grade. Um, <laughs> And how excited, you know, I was to watch my team win. Henry's laughing over there because he's he's a sports fan. I I actually, you know, it's not like it, it's not like I'm above sports, but somehow um <laughs> somehow um uh yeah. It, it's it works well for sports. It it works well for cable news. I don't think it works well for politics. And yet Somehow, this is what politics have become, I, you know, and it's not like it's just owing to cable news and just owing to social media and the immediacy with which we need to have reactions to things and promote things and ideas and be on board or denounce or disclaim or, you know, I, I think there have always been rival factions. But instead of compromise, you know, the art of the possible, what, what politics is supposed to be, you know, being the way that we do this now, it feels more like if people compromise, you know, one team would accuse the other of like, oh, that's like intercepting the ball and running it and, you know, scoring a goal on the wrong side of the field. It's like no, no longer is speaking across the divide of difference a virtue. It's like you're a traitor. And so I'm thinking about, big shocker, Abraham. Abraham, the father of the many, of Hamon, the sort of patriarch of the Jewish people, the father of the Christians and the Muslims and Baha'i and anybody that traces their lineage, I guess Mormons too, right? All back to Abraham. We have very different ways of seeing the world. Very different ways of seeing the world. And yet we all trace our lineage back to Abraham and somehow when seen through that lens, it's like a reminder that we actually have more in common than divides us. The Torah tells a story this week, which is maybe one of the most famous stories in the Torah, um, especially if you're the kind of Jew that prides yourself on Judaism's elevating of challenging authority. Right. So we don't just we don't just take on faith. This is how it has to be. We argue, we challenge. Right. The reason why Noah a few weeks ago um, is not the father of the Jewish people is because when God says, I'm sending a flood to destroy the world, Noah says, cool, I'll get out of the way and I'll build an ark for myself and my family. 
He does not get in there and argue. He doesn't say, wait a second, is this the only way to solve this problem? So just a few chapters ago, right, we saw this story. God wipes out humanity and then comes and says, you know, puts a beautiful rainbow in the sky and says, I'll never do it again. And then just a few chapters later, there is this place on planet Earth, Sodom and Gomorrah, that is so irredeemably terrible that the only solution God can come up with is destruction. Burn it to the ground. Fire and brimstone, literally. So God gut checks this idea with Abraham. Says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy these cities because their sin is so grave. And Abraham, as you probably know, argues. Before, before we look at what he says, have you ever like wondered what was so bad about Sodom and Gomorrah? Like the only solution, God, the creator of the universe, the inventor of photosynthesis, the strawberry, the human eyeball, like the amount of creativity that goes into, you know, any natural thing you look at, like God, the creator, couldn't figure out another way to deal with the sins in this city. Like what was so bad about this place? The Torah doesn't really say, gives us one example of um, some very inhospitable behavior, but it doesn't go into detail. Like what, what was so bad about this place? So the Midrash gives us some insight. Here's what the Midrash says. The land was incredibly rich and fertile. The stones on the ground were sapphires. The dust on the ground, when you like pulled lettuce out of the ground, it, it shone with gold dust. The trees were leafy and, and um, robust. There was shade everywhere, so you never got burned by the sun. The trees bore figs and pomegranates and dates and walnuts and apples and peaches. And the Sodomites said to one another, look at all of this abundance that we have. Let us erase immigrants, immigration, and wayfarers from our land such that this is only ours. Let us see to it that we forget the practice of welcoming in strangers. We turn them away. And so if a stranger came, if a, a guest, a wanderer, sojourner came through, they would say, here, lie in this bed overnight. And if the bed was too small for them, they would cut off the person's feet. If the person didn't fit in the bed, they would stretch them to fit. If a poor man came to Sodom and Gomorrah, they would give him a coin and they would write their name on the coin. And then when that poor man would try to redeem that coin for bread or for food, no one would give them food. And so when that person died of hunger, everyone would come back and take back their coin. They would feign generosity and in fact have an entire strategy for, um, for ensuring that the poor remained poor. There's a story of a young girl who would bring this poor man in the street 
bread hidden in a pitcher every day when she was drawing water from the well. And after a few days, the townspeople noticed that this poor man didn't die. They wondered why. Why hasn't this guy died already? When they figured out what was going on, they smothered the girl in honey, the Midrash says, and put her on a rooftop to die of a, a death of stinging by bees. In another version of the same story, it's Lot's daughter. So Abraham's, uh, I guess, grandniece. Um, in another version of the story, they find out that she's been sustaining this poor person and they take her out into the town square and burn her alive. So the tradition understands the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, this place that, that God has determined irredeemable as a society that had everything and yet embodied the worst of humanity's selfish instincts, right? Our cruel instincts, our greediness, our lust, our desire for power, and our utter lack of generosity when we feel that we need to control our own little space, um, and our utter inability to tolerate difference, that if somebody goes a different way and tries a different thing, that they are burned at the stake, literally. It's tribalism at its worst. You know, I remember reading these stories of Sodom like a decade ago and being like, well, those are some crazy, fantastical descriptions of a society that I don't recognize. And strangely, in the metaphoric and poetic way that Midrash speaks, I recognize Sodom and Gomorrah very much now. And God looked at this place and said, it's too sick to heal. Better burn it to the ground. And Abraham either was not bothered by this behavior or maybe thought there's a different approach. Like this zero sum situation isn't the only way to think about it. In any case, Abraham says to God, wait a second. I know it looks bad, but what if there are 50 good people there? You're going to treat the wicked along with the, the innocent the same? He says one of these like iconic lines in the Torah, that would be an embarrassment for you, God. The judge of all the earth, the one who, whose name is justice, won't do justice. And God says, you make a good point if there are 50 I won't destroy the city. And you'd think, okay, like Abraham's made a good campaign. He'd sit down. No, he stands back up and says, what if the 50 lack five? What if there are only 45? And they go back and forth like this until Abraham gets down to 10. Now, I'm not, I'm not looking at the Facebook comments, but knowing now how awful the folks in Sodom were. Like, who do you sympathize with in this story? You know, you kind of, like, I can relate. I can relate to this sense of, you know, this society is just so corrupt. All of its institutions need to be dismantled down to the studs. But Abraham says that there has to be another way. And our tradition reveres Abraham for going to bat for people that are corrupt, evil to the core. 
He exercises empathy and curiosity on their behalf. He wonders if maybe in this town can be found some good people. And I'm thinking about like after the election in 2016, and so many people I know, you know, here in this blue city, in this uh, blue city in an otherwise maybe less blue state of Illinois, who said like, I, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. I didn't realize there's so many people who felt, feel so like utterly disempowered and are so unhappy with their lives that they would elect somebody whose platform was so blatantly racist and homophobic and xenophobic. I feel like I need to go have dinner with people who are really different from me. I feel like I need to go get to know America. There's a very like Abrahamic instinct. Maybe there should be people who are out there who voted differently than I did, who I really don't understand. And I don't think they understand me either. Um, Sarah Silverman, the comedian, actually like, took this mandate very seriously. She had a whole show on HBO called I Love You, America. And the whole show was um, connecting with people. This is in her words, connecting with people who may not agree with her personal opinions, but through honesty, humor, and genuine interest in others, also not taking herself too seriously, helped her connect with unlike-minded people. And there are a number of organizations that are cropping up as this divide, you know, and the tribalism between parties gets more and more exaggerated that are trying to like bridge this gap, braver angels and bridge the divide and the National Institute for Civil Discourse and Unify America are all in some way trying to do what Abraham's instinct was in that moment with God, like believe with all of our heart that our common humanity has to be stronger than the very, the very real, the very real rhetoric and the very real policies that are dividing us, that scare us so, so profoundly across our tribes. And <laughs> there's a lot of damage to make up, you know, to, to pick up the pieces after these last four years um, you know, I, I feel in some way we've all been living in a kind of endless trauma that we're going to have to process through and it's not going to happen tonight and it's not going to happen, you know, next week, but it's going to be a kind of unfolding, unfolding revealing of like what, what damage out there and in here really have we been sustaining, carrying around, you know, as we've been trying to fight the good fight, whatever that has looked like for you in this last chapter. I am very much hoping that this next chapter enables healing and stability and reconnection and reconnection with ourself and our ideals. Because at the end of the day, like this isn't actually about winning a game. You know, this is, this is trying to reconnect with what what exactly is the bigger why that brings us to the game in the first place, right? It's not about Manchester United or Liverpool at the end of the day, it's about soccer. So what is it? Is it this idea that there is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but that actually it's not just for white men who are straight and own property, but it's actually 
about making that dream, like breaking that dream wide open. And, you know, something that's incredibly encouraging is that in this, in what we do know, we might not know in this moment who is president, but what we do know is that the state selected more people of color and queer people and non-binary people to serve in the House and Senate. Sarah McBride is the first openly trans person to be a state senator from Delaware. This is, I don't mention this because these are blue in nature. I mention this because this is the opening up. This is the opening up of a dream and the fulfillment of many, many generations of people not fighting to win a small battle, but to hold a dream, to keep our eyes on a much bigger prize that I really do actually believe connects us, whether we're red or blue in this whole moment. I think we have a lot, a lot of breathing to do. I said when I started speaking 45 minutes ago, I wasn't exactly sure where I would land tonight. My hope is that like each one of us on an individual level heals from what has been what has been a really challenging and I, I will use the word traumatic because I think it has been um, for many people, some some in a more theoretical way and some in an absolutely personal physical way. And that impacts all of us. And we need to hold each other and we need to care for each other. But we need to care for each other regardless of what jersey the person on the ground who's hurting is wearing. And that, if we can be a little bit more like Abraham, if we can come with the idealism of the person who says, I think there has to be another way. I think we can do this thing called America. I really, really do. So in the spirit of Shabbat, I want to take a breath and raise a glass to better days, to healing, to hope. What do you want to raise a glass to tonight? You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of T and Mishkan, thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.